Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Eleanor McLaughlin. Dr. McLaughlin holds a PhD from the University of Oxford and is the program leader for the postgraduate programs in theology, imagination, and culture at Sarum College. Her book is entitled Unconscious Christianity and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Late Theology. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's great to have this chance to chat with you. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, I've been really excited about this. I've been away for a couple months, and this is kind of a, a regular rhythm of my life, or has been for the past two years. So um, I got to read your book and, and loved it, and then, you know, just to be able to kind of connect has been, uh, been exciting. So thanks. Yeah, um, uh, so how I usually start this out is I, just sort of a get to know you for, for myself and for the listeners. So I was wondering if you could tell me how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Right. Uh, this is during my undergraduate degree. So I studied for my BA at Regent's Park College at the University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this wonderful paper, an optional paper that you could select to do in the third year of undergraduate, which was to just look at one author during a whole term. Uh, so I did that and I uh, <laughs> I remember getting advice about which Bonhoeffer, which um, theologian I should look at, sat in the Regents Park College JCR and looking at the list of options. Uh, and the person I was talking to said, well, you know, start at the top, Bart. Well, loads of people do Bart, so that's a bit boring. Second on the list, Bonhoeffer. Oh, yeah, that's a good option. You should do that. So I was like, OK, great. I'll do Bonhoeffer. So I signed up. Uh, and there were only three of us in the group, which meant that every week we would meet three students and one excellent tutor. And we would just sit and chat about the book or the bit of the book that we'd read that week. It was basically like a reading group mm. for undergraduates for eight weeks. That's all I did is I read Bonhoeffer. Um, oh. And after eight weeks, I thought, well, that was really fun. I kind of forgot about it. Uh, but then when I was considering doing further study, I thought, wow, that was something that I really enjoyed and that I felt there was more, that I felt there was more there that I wanted to investigate. So that's where it all started, really. Mm, that's awesome. Uh, how did you, so how do you get from that time as a, an undergraduate to doing a PhD and using Bonhoeffer as sort of like the, the go-to person? What, what inspired you to do that? Yeah, um, well, I suppose part of it has to do with my master's thesis, which happened in the middle, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm one of those people who's never quite sure what they're doing. So I thought I was done with studying after my BA, but then after a couple of years, I went back and did a master's degree. And for my master's dissertation, I looked at uh, the question of responsibility in Bonhoeffer, and particularly because we had to be really focused, you know, how it is for a short dissertation. I looked at the period between um, life together and letters and papers, so a really mm. short period of time. And as I was doing my research for the concept of responsibility, I came across this phrase, unconscious Christianity. And I wrote the classic line that every person has ever written, this is an interesting question, but there's no time to explore that here. <laughs> Moving on. Um, and so then later when I came back to do a DPhil, I thought, well, maybe now is my opportunity to go back and look at the thing that I couldn't look at in my in my master's dissertation. So that's mm. kind of how that came about. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so I guess how I usually try to set out every episode is for people who, let's say, 
like they're usually standalone episodes. So let's say someone finds this episode. I try to set it out as if, if someone who's unfamiliar with Bonhoeffer, they can kind of still hop right into the conversation. Ooh. So I'm wondering before we get into, I guess, the, the content of your book, um, could you give like a basic, very basic overview of what, uh, of what is going on in letters and papers and the fiction? Like, where is Bonhoeffer? Who is he writing to? That sort of thing. Ooh. So at this point in his life, Bonhoeffer has been arrested and he's in Tegel military interrogation prison. He's arrested on the 5th of April, 1943, and he'll be in custody for the rest of his life before in, up until his uh, murder on the 9th of April, 45. So during this time in his cell in Tegel, he has the opportunity to do some writing. He's uh, allowed to write very, very sporadically at first to his family and to his fiancée. And then when he uh, befriends one of the guards, he's able to write more because the guard uh, smuggles his correspondence in and out of the prison. And that kind of ramps up his writing ability. Mm. Um, so during this time, he's writing letters uh, to his friends, some of which, uh, most of which, in fact, are to his friend Eberhard Bittger. Um, some of these letters are really basic you know it's thank you for dropping off the extra shirts for me at the at the prison you know well thanks for dropping off that bit of uh, sausage which I really enjoyed you know they're, they're just about his day-to-day -day life really a lot of them and then as we progress through his time in prison and we get closer and closer to um, the second year April 1944 he starts to write a lot more about theological questions mm. Um, and during this time, he's also writing different things. He's writing some poetry, um, which is kind of scattered throughout. If you if you looked at letters and papers, uh, just physically look, look at the book, it's a massive wadge of text. Uh, mm. And scattered through this book are some poems that he wrote. Uh, there are also some, just some jottings and notes that he made while he was thinking about the book that he would write when he came out of prison. Um, and also, really interestingly, for me, at least during this period, he starts to write fiction. Uh, so those are collected in a different volume. So, yeah, he's he's in the, a very stressful context, but a context in which he has a lot of time, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. And so he's really developing some of his uh, cogitations, I suppose, about things theological in these texts. Wow. And what happens in the so the, the fiction? I think there's there's a drama. There's you you kind of define them as a novel, drama, and um, there's a short story. And the short well. stories, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, can you give us like a little like two minute overview yeah. of those? So the drama. We should begin by saying actually that the first two pieces of work he never actually finishes. It's only the short story that he writes third that he completes. Hmm. So he starts writing a drama. The context is very much like his own family home. The people that we encounter, you know, you can tell they're his parents, they're his siblings, they're his friends, they're his grandma, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and the, con the, the kind of plot for drama is that someone comes back from the First World War, we have to assume, uh, wounded, mortally wounded, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about that young man's uh, own thinking about death, um, it's about how his family respond to this to this situation uh, and how his friend and his fiance respond to the situation. But uh, it's also about this young man's encounter 
with um, another young man from a very different social background um, who has a lot of questions about, uh, I suppose, social justice in a way and how society works and also some theological questions. And so a, a lot of the text is kind of quite angst-ridden conversations between these, these different characters. Uh, and it kind of peters out and the novel, his attempt at writing a novel, is uh, much more relaxed <laughs> in its, in its uh, atmosphere, I suppose. Mm. Um, the young people in this text aren't quite so angst-ridden. In fact, they have kind of a nice day out in the forest and they, you know, go mushroom picking. And a lot of the early part of the that piece of fiction is about description of the family home and, you know, how nice everything is and, you know, the, the relationship between the grandma and the granddaughter and things like that. So um, it's still very, very clearly autobiographical in the sense that the characters certainly represent or are an amalgamation of different family members. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is starting to tackle some really important theological themes in these works. And then when novel kind of peters out, he then writes a short story, totally different, different setting. It's in prison. The lead character is a prison guard who's been disfigured by um, his active service at the front. And he comes back to work as a prison guard, comes back from the front to work as a prison guard. And he's shunned by the um, hierarchy in mm. the prison system. Um, and he's the only character in the prison management system, if you like, who's trying to do the right thing by the prisoners, make sure they have enough to eat and so on. And because of his sort of quest for justice, really, throughout the short story, he's eventually elbowed out by the chief of the prison, hmm. um, who worries that this character will uncover his own greed and corruption, essentially. Um, yeah, so the third is the third piece is is hugely different to the first two, in in uh, content and in tone and yeah, hmm. in setting. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, so Bonhoeffer starts writing about unconscious Christianity in ethics, right? I think that's hmm. the first place that it pops up. Yeah. Um, so you and your book, you work from uh, ethics and then letters and papers and then fiction, and you sort of. Uh, work towards a working definition of these occurrences and what Bonhoeffer might mean from those. So I'm wondering if we could just walk through those um, and I guess we could just start with ethics. So um, when Bonhoeffer writes about unconscious Christianity in his book, Ethics, what is he describing? Well, he writes about it without actually naming it apart mm. from in a little scribbled note on the side of the page. Mm. But what I'm claiming, I suppose, is that that marginal scribble is describing the people he's talking about in that essay. So in the essay, um, Ultimate and Penultimate Things, he ends that essay by talking about a group of people who are trying to hold on to what he calls the penultimate. So things that are of this world that aren't kind of eschatological, if you like, mm -hmm. concrete things in the world. Uh, and they're people who no longer he says, dare to call themselves Christians. So people who have purposefully stopped self-identifying as Christians. But part of the penultimate that he's describing that they're holding on to are what he calls the human and the good, which are quite nebulous terms. But <laughs> right. 
I, I, you, I think uh, that he's actually talking about real people here. So, you know, the um, good people uh, that should, as he says, be claimed for Christ. He's basically making the argument that there are things that belong to Christ in the world that don't necessarily uh, look as though they belong to Christ. They're mm. not, you know, mm. uh, obviously part, you know, they're not, I don't know, a church. Sure. <laughs> clearly is in the realm of Christ, you know. Um, so he's saying that these specific people are trying to hold on to the good things in the world that belong to Christ. And so they should be, uh, yeah, claimed as Christians in some way because they're doing this work for Christ. And, and more specifically, I suppose, if we look at the context of his writing, he's talking about a very specific group of people uh, in, in Germany, maybe in Western Europe, if we broaden the scope very slightly. But ethics is, is so focused in on the German situation that it's hard to claim that he's writing much more broadly than that. Mm. Um, so in his particular historical location as well, you know, the, the late 30s, the early 40s, these are very specific people. It's almost as though he's seeing specific people in his mind's eye when he's writing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, th this is kind of off topic of that but do you think he would expand i mean obviously can't speak for him but i'm asking just your ideas do you think that he would expand that elsewhere or is it just a specific class of people that he has in mind my sense is that at this point it's a class of people that he has in mind oh. but you know with these with these unfinished texts of Barnabas, right. it's you know, what would he have written if he'd survived? If he'd gone back in 1948 and he'd said, okay, well, I'm finally ready to edit my ethics essays and I'm gonna, you know, revamp them for the modern world. Uh, what what would he have done? I don't really know if we can go there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Hmm. So he, it's, it's just a little scribble in the side of the, uh, the side of the page as he's writing it in ethics. Uh, but it seems to come out much more prominently in fiction and letters and papers. Um, mm. So where, what, how, what is he describing when he writes about it in fiction? Yeah, so in fiction, it comes up in uh, the novel mm. and he's describing the parents of the family. So the, Bro the Broca uh, family, uh, they're very well-to-do. They're, as I said before, very similar to the Bonhoeffers. They're members of this Bildungsbürgertum that are, uh, they have responsibility in society. Their children get trained as teachers and doctors and lawyers and all these people who are gonna help society run smoothly and improve it. Um, and so the parents in the novel are described as not being very religious, in fact, not attending church at all. But one thing that they do do is that they say grace at mealtimes so that the, their youngest boy can kind of learn that and internalize that practice. Um, but what they, what makes them unconscious Christians, so that the two, there are two younger male characters, two boys who were talking about this and thinking, you know, what on earth do we mean when we say unconscious Christians? They kind mm -hmm. of are picking it apart and they uh, name the Baraka parents as unconscious Christians. Mm. And they seem to think that what really makes them unconscious Christians is that they're not 
are fussed about their place in the world. They're not anxious about it. They're not trying to kind of uh, get ahead. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to desperately maintain their footing in society. They, they are just who they are. And thinking about this kind of after having written the book now, I think there's a strong link between this idea of unconscious Christianity being about not seeking to be someone other than you are, not having this false ambition or false ideas about yourself. That's really strongly linked in the fiction to this idea about having ground under your feet, Mm. having stability, Mm. having kind of knowing your place in the world. It's a very old fashioned idea, really. You know, you just know your place and you inhabit it regardless of where you happen to be. Um, So I think it is strongly connected to the idea yeah, of, of confidence almost, uh, just peaceful confidence, maybe we could call it. Yeah. yeah. Contentment, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Um, wow. And there's like, uh, you mentioned in your book that there seems to be like kind of a, a, a two set, a double sided coin where you have um, unconscious Christianity can, can mean something like uh, non reflexive. Non-reflective, I guess, but also there is this people like unconscious as uh, being called a Christian without, I guess, self-identifying or, or noticing. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's super interesting. Um, that's, how do those do those relate together? Or I mean, yeah. So I think what happens, what we have to bear in mind in in this in discussing unconscious Christianity is that it's a concept that is in development throughout these few years that we find it in Bonhoeffer's work. It's not as done and dusted, even as religionless Christianity, and people debate that still, right? So this is in development, and at different times of his life, he seems to emphasize different facets of it. So Mm -hmm. we're moving from here, autumn 1940, autumn 1943 for the Mm -hmm. fiction, into the spring of 1944, where he, that's where he says in his letter to Bittger, he says um, about unconscious Christianity being something that's preoccupying him more and more. And he links it to Fides Director and Fides Reflector, mm-hmm. which is what you're, you're just picking up there, this idea of having faith on which you can't reflect. Yeah. So in the first bit there, in, in the fiction, he seems to be talking about people who just have inherited Christianity by who they are through their culture, perhaps. Um, And it's something that they, uh, something that they are without realizing that they are Mm -hmm. it, if you see what I mean. And then by the time we get to spring 1944, summer 1944, really, um, he seems to be talking more about not unconscious Christianity is something that you inherit because of who you are in the world Mm. and your class and your kind of cultural inheritance, but something that um, is similar to um, the faith of an infant at baptism. That's the connection that he makes Mm. uh, that, you know, when, when a church baptizes an infant, they're kind of saying, 
we, we trust that this infant has faith or will grow into faith, but at the moment, the infant can't obviously reflect on that faith. This is the, that's the link he's making to this, you know, mm. unreflected faith in the unconscious Christian by the time we get to summer 44. So it's, you know, it's quite different to what we've just seen in the fiction. It's just a different facet or a, a different, as this concept is swirling through his mind, you know, we get different spotlights onto different parts of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. Uh, before we started recording, but we were talking about this, but so I, I kind of picked that up from, I mean, I started at the very beginning. I started volume nine and then went to volume one and seeing Sanctorum Communio uh, being partly written towards Trulch and the, uh, the idea that the church is irrelevant because of human autonomy. And then, yeah, the fetus directus and, or actus reflexus, the, those things. Um, and then kind of on into creation fall. And I just saw that like, oh, this is everywhere. So I, when I was reading your book, I, I was reading it and thinking, hey, this would have been really useful a year ago because it was picking right up along. But then it was like, oh, wow, there's this whole nother side of this uh, where he uses this term to describe the same term, but he uses it almost in completely different ways. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see kind of, like you said, this, this sort of development. Um, mm. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned some about letters and papers. I'm wondering if there's any more. So in, in unconscious Christianity and letters and papers, what is he describing? Yeah, so, so um, after he writes the letter to Bittger, he writes, um, or almost at the same time, he's writing notes for the book that he's going to write when he gets out of prison. Hmm. And there he links unconscious Christianity to two passages in Matthew. Matthew 6, 3, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Hmm. And he links it to Matthew 25, uh, just after the parables of uh, the uh, virgins who put oil in their lamps and the virgins who don't put oil in their lamps. Uh, um, and this is the bit in Matthew 25 where the people have uh, clothed the naked and have fed the hungry. Um, and they don't realize that they're having any kind of encounter or interaction with Jesus. But then when the king or Jesus, you know, in mm -hmm. the text, uh, turns around and he said, he tells them, well, when you did those things, you were actually doing them for me. Uh, and so my, my claim, I suppose, in the book is that here Bonhoeffer is intentionally linking unconscious Christians, unconscious Christianity to the people in Matthew 25 who have encountered Jesus without knowing it through their actions for others. So a very specific type of action, an action that's turned outwards um, he often, again and again, in letters and papers, talks about Jesus as being for others. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm claiming that if people be for others <laughs> or are for others, they somehow participate in that being of Jesus mm. without knowing it, as in Matthew 25. Yeah. And the link to Matthew 6, 3 is this idea that the best way to, in this instance, give alms is without you think about it so little that you don't even realize what your different hands are doing, right? Mm -hmm. That it's so integral to who you are that you don't, it doesn't even cross your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and that somehow that's what he's talking about when he's talking about unconscious Christianity. It, it's, it's such an integral feature of 
that unconscious Christian that they don't even say, hey, look at me, I'm Christian, I'm doing all this great stuff. They just do all the stuff and they're not even thinking that they're Christian. Hmm. And that's really similar to, if we go back to discipleship, it's really similar to what he's saying about hidden righteousness in discipleship that, you know, in the best of all possible words, worlds, um, we wouldn't even think about the fact that we're being disciples because the problem when you think about it is that you think, oh, wow, I'm doing such a great job of being a disciple. I'm, I'm amazing at this. Yeah. And then your pride flares up and you can't actually be a good disciple anymore because you're thinking about it. What you want is hidden discipleship. You just be a disciple. You don't even realize that you're mm-hmm. being it. So there's a strong connection there between what he writes in discipleship and what he's writing right in the heart of of letters and papers from prison. Definitely. So as you mentioned, this sort of develops more and more from ethics all the way to letters and papers. Um, So I guess with all three of those texts in view, you sort of have this working definition. I'm wondering if you could define uh, unconscious Christianity for us. I think it's a it's a moving definition mm-hmm. that reflects the development of his thought on this as we go along. But at its core, it has this element of unconscious Christians are people who encounter Christ, engage with Christ without realizing that that is what they're doing, without mm-hmm. realizing that that's what's happening. They might, in fact, they probably do not self-identify as Christian. Hmm. He says that explicitly in the ethics text. He doesn't say that again explicitly anywhere else, but I think we can take it for granted that these unconscious Christians don't self-identify as Christian. Hmm. They have this faith that they don't reflect on, which leads them to do acts of faith, if you like, that they don't reflect on, that they just do because of who they are. And the early part of this definition I think that Bonhoeffer thinks these people are likely to be members of the Bürgertum because he seems to think that that specific class of person has inherited everything that they need to be an unconscious Christian through their through their upbringing, through their family uh, learning, I guess. Um, but often that class of people have then actually turned away from the church. So interestingly, I think at the beginning he thinks that unconscious Christians probably are members of the Bürgertum. I think that disappears as he as he writes further on the topic. Mm. Um, and I think that what he's claiming is that like the people in Matthew 25 who are deemed righteous in the text by God, these unconscious Christians are deemed righteous by God. He's saying you know, this is a form of Christian expression that is not inferior, it's not superior either to any other form of Christian expression, but it's a form of It's a valid form of Christian expression. These people are Christian. It's just that their Christianity is different from the type that perhaps we're more conversant with, where, you know, you say the creed, you you know, Mm -hmm. you have that element of your Christianity that is that is conscious, that is part of your kind of rational decision making, if you like. Thank you. That's great. Um, So I guess a a big debate um, in Bonhoeffer's studies is sort of the uh, the consistency of his thought, um, whether or not he breaks away. Uh, there, there's, there's been lots of books written about it. Even, I mean, my own 
uh, master's thesis, there was, I, I devoted a chapter to like, see, this is all pretty straightforward, you know, kind of thing. Um, but in this, in this book, you specifically focus on his late theology. So I'm wondering, uh, do you see any sort this is a, is this a shift compared to the early stuff? Um, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it's a shift. Yeah. Um, I, I chose that word because I don't want to say it's a break. I don't think that it's a break. As I was just saying, you know, there's stuff here that is so similar to discipleship. We, we can't say this is a totally different Bonhoeffer in prison you know all these claims about oh he lost his faith oh he became a different person you know all this stuff no it's it's clearly him and he's clearly not forgotten everything that he's written before <laughs> but i do think it is a slight a, a change of direction which mm-hmm. a shift let's just go with shift because i think <sighs> he's responding for the first time to people who are outside the institutional church. And he's not really done that before. Mm. And Bonhoeffer is a theologian who responds to reality. Uh, There's a great book by Henri Dumas, uh, Bonhoeffer, Theologian of Reality, because it's a great title because it really sums up what Bonhoeffer is about. He thinks about his lived experience and then he theologizes from it. And for the first time in the Second World War, he's really having a close connection, is relying on people who are outside the church, people um, who are in the Abwehr, who are in the resistance movement. And he's thinking, my goodness, what, how can I have a theological structure that envelops these people? I can't reject them. I can't say they're outside my kind of, you know, the world that God has embraced in Christ. Mm-hmm. And that leads him to have this theology of the of those outside the institutional church. And I think that's a big shift mm. in his work. But his motivation is the same throughout, taking his lived experience seriously and the people that surround him seriously. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, I do have just one last question for you. It's going to be a bit easier. Um, well, maybe it won't be. We'll, we'll see how, how you take it. So every episode I end uh, with just a, a little game of Desert Island. Um, so the idea is that you're trapped on a desert island. You get one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer, any sort of secondary source you would like. So it could be a biography or it could be a book like yours that's on his theology. Um I don't think I'd take my book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure you've read those words plenty of times. Uh, what two books would you take and why? It's like being on desert island desks. Uh, <laughs> I would have to take Letters and Papers as my book by Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so rich and it's so varied and it has it has poetry, which you can revisit again and again and again. Mm-hmm. It has glimpses into his life, which are really, um, uh, yeah, really, really personal and kind of show him as Bonhoeffer the man, not as Bonhoeffer the the public figure. Uh, And it has rigorous theological uh, exposition. It has everything. So so I would take that. Um, For my book about Bonhoeffer, I would probably, can I take two? 
Sure. It's just, this is just uh, to get some book recommendations. I would, <laughs> I would talk. I would take uh, Eberhard Bietzger's massive doorstopper of a biography because it's again. That's everyone says that one. So so you're good. It's so great. It's so great. Yeah. I would take that, but I maybe would also take Bonhoeffer and Life in Pictures. Hmm. Have you come across that? No. It's great. It's um one of the editors. It has several editors. One of them is Christian Gremmels. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant because there's all this photographic archive in one place, in one book. And there's a lot of um, contemporary history as well, photographic archives from, um, you know, Germany in the 30s and 40s. And it's it's really, really interesting. And there's some uh, photocopies of letters in there. And yeah, it's a really great resource. And a bit of a lighter read than Eberhard Bittger's <laughs> massive book. Bonhoeffer, A Life in Pictures, you said? I think so, yeah. I think okay. it's called A Life in Pictures. And you said the, the other one that you mentioned earlier, was that A Theologian of Reality? Yeah, André Dumas. His work's been translated into English. Uh, and his, the title in English, is, I think, is just a theolo- Dietrich Bonhoeffer, A Theologian of Reality. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is just a way to get uh more books to read <laughs> make Absolutely. a longer list and then hopefully maybe uh more guests eventually <laughs> and give me some ideas but uh i really appreciate the time that you've given me and uh, your book was great it's given me so much so so many ideas and questions to kind of chase down as i start my phd studies well i should probably mention that uh for the listener i guess um but, uh, if, you're, if you're listening to this you've probably been wa- walking through this for, for a while with me. Um, I've been accepted to the University of Aberdeen um, and I'm starting the Systematic Theology PhD program there um, and under Phil Ziegler. Um, and yeah, super excited. Uh, so I just started like last Thursday. So That's wonderful. Just now I'm getting in. So your book has given me a ton to think about. So I, I, oh, I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no problem. Um, so your book, uh, again, the book is Unconscious Christianity and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Late Theology, Encounters with the Unknown Christ. It's available on Amazon. And if you have any questions, I'm sure you can uh, reach out to uh, Dr. McLaughlin and she'll be glad to help. So thank you again. And uh, yeah, hopefully we talk again soon. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And thank you to Dr. McLaughlin for coming on. If you would like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash bonhopperpod. And thank you to Chris Baker, Diego Reeve, Kevin Dykstra, and Soren Jensen for their support as patrons. If you would like to join them in their support of the podcast, I would really appreciate it. Also, as I mentioned on the show, I've recently been accepted into the University of Aberdeen's Systematic Theology PhD program. Because of that, I'm going to have to start reading through Bonhoeffer, start to finish, all over again. So I would love to start a reading group through the Patreon and start reading that together with you. If you're interested, please visit patreon.com slash BonhoefferPod. And as always, thank you so much for your support, and we'll be back again soon.